Talking Twitter. I'm Isaac Fitzgerald. He is Saeed Jones. It's Monday, and you are watching AM to DM. Mm, happy to be here. Uh, as predicted on the show last week, the Mueller report was, of course, submitted uh, to William Barr late in the afternoon on Friday. Yeah, like kind of right before 5 p.m. Like, yeah, oh, it's happy hour. Let's go ahead and do this report. <laughs> a classic Friday afternoon news dump, but Tanya Chen, you know, works here at BuzzFeed. She called it. She at tweeted 10 that at 10 a.m. <laughs> Don't you dare do it. And he went ahead and did it. You bargain basement bitch. How dare you do this to our weekend? <laughs> and then it was just a lot of people waiting. And that's why it was annoying. And yeah. not actually having any information because yeah. it's not like it was released. It was right. just turned into the attorney. Yeah, here's the thing. That's an excellent point, Isaac. Thank you. If the full report, the full report mm. had been released at 5 p.m. to Congress at the very least, but certainly to all of us, like the five were like, here, boom, you know, that would have been lit. I would have been like, well, you're right. Get I some am, rosé. Yeah, I am going to need a weekend to read this whole thing. Get one of those little paper turning things yeah. for your finger. <laughs> you could have you really made yeah. a weekend of it. But no, instead it was just a lot of, I saw a lot of people on the timeline being like, it was jokes, of course, but yeah. like, here's the size of the paper that I think it will be like, like all these predictions, so many talking heads over the weekend, really just trying to figure out ways to talk about nothing. Yeah, and even then, when we finally got something on the Sabbath, again, rude, <laughs> disrespectful, a four-page letter mm. narrated not by Mueller. Mm -hmm. We have not seen anything written by Robert Mueller. I want to make this very clear. All we are going on is a summary written by Attorney General appointed by Donald Trump, William Barr. So, Which you would not know if you looked at the headlines of the New York Times this morning. Just throwing that out there. But listen, on Sunday, you know what I did? What'd you do? I put my phone down. Okay. It was a beautiful day here in New York City. It was. I, I went out skateboarding. Okay. It feels my legs are a little sore today. Oh, <laughs> real good. What'd you do? I know it was a beautiful day because I read the weather app on my phone. Um, instead, I watched uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse four times. Four times. Really good. It's a damn good movie. All right. Copy that. <laughs> Listen, Twitter. Let's take it to the timeline. How did you spend your weekend? Were you glued mm. to the internet, glued to television, waiting for any new information, or did you go outside, I relax a did. little bit? Yeah, exactly. Let us know using the hashtag AM to DM. Oh, man. Well, let's get into what we do actually know for sure. BuzzFeed News reporter Emma Loop highlighted these truly stunning figures on the scale of Mueller's investigation. Here we go. 19 lawyers, 40 FBI employees, more than 2,800 subpoenas, 500 ser uh, search warrants, more than 230 orders for communication records, 50 orders for PIN registers. I know, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know what a PIN register is. 13 requests to foreign governments, 500 interviews. All right, pen registers, we were told by producers, yeah. like kind of something to do with phone records, maybe. I think it's, yeah, I think it's a record of the number of, like the phone calls that have been made from a specific phone. I like the idea that it was just like a giant order of pens, I like 50 giant <laughs> order of pens. Listen, as for all, where all of this leaves us this morning, BuzzFeed News Justice reporter Zoe Tillman tweeted, Trump tweeted, no collusion, no obstruction, complete and total exoneration. On obstruction, Mueller said, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. And Barr said, evidence is not sufficient. Okay, we got a lot of different narrators, a lot <laughs> of different spins. Well, let's go live from the district to try to get some answers. Zoe Tillman joins us right now. Zoe, good morning. Good morning. Hi. Okay, so is it shocking to you as a justice reporter that at this point, all we have to go on is Attorney General William Barr's four-page summary? Like, is he a reliable narrator? 
It's not surprising that this is what we have right now. Um, it was always clear that whatever the special counsel produced was not going to just immediately be released to the public in its entirety. Um, there is, as Barr said, there's material in there that relates potentially to ongoing investigations that are still going. There's information that relates to sensitive grand jury matters. We have no idea how long the report is. Um, over the weekend, we tried to get officials at the Justice Department to even say, you know, like, this big, this big, um, and they wouldn't give us that. So we could be talking about a pretty substantial document where they need to really go through and figure out what legally they can release. Um, so it's not surprising that this is all we have right now, but I agree it's certainly not satisfying and, that and this is all we a, have. A quick question to that point. We have a lot of stats. Do we know how many pages long Mueller's actual report is? No, that's, that's what you're just saying. Yeah, we don't they actually figure know. it out. We do not. We do not. We asked repeatedly and we could not get that answer. Wow. Yeah. Wow. This long, this long, we don't know. Do we know what the main conclusions that Mueller makes are? According to the attorney general, and again, we should stress that right now what we have is Bill Barr's summary of the report. So his assessment of the key principal conclusions were in two parts. The first being that uh, Mueller found that, yes, Russia very much did try to interfere in the election. But according to Barr, the special counsel did not find that there was any uh, involvement, knowingly at least, by the Trump campaign to, to work with those Russian interference efforts. And that the special counsel found there were, I think, quote, multiple offers by individuals associated with Russia to the Trump campaign. Um, but there was no evidence that there was any conspiracy um, or effort to coordinate by the campaign. Uh, the other piece of it is the obstruction part. And that was really the other major issue looming over this presidency was whether the special counsel would conclude that Trump tried to obstruct this investigation into Russian interference. And what Mueller did was he said, I'm not going to make this call. He basically kicked it over to the attorney general and said, here are the facts. Here are conclusions of, of law and what we found on both sides. And he left it up to the attorney general to make that finding. And the attorney general said that based on the evidence that they had, it was not sufficient to say that the president tried to obstruct justice. Um, you know, and what's important to also look at is the reason why uh, what the attorney general basically said was that the fact that the special counsel didn't find any evidence of a conspiracy, any underlying crime, went to the question of whether there was corrupt intent in terms of the actions that the president did take with respect to the investigation. So not that that was necessarily the only factor, but the attorney general wrote that it was significant that there was no finding of an underlying crime, and that went to whether the president could intend to obstruct justice with what he was saying or doing about the Mueller investigation. Okay, so then this leads to some other questions. <laughs> really? Yeah, just a few, just a few, you know, chill, chill, chill. I mean, one, um, has Barr or Mueller explained why the report at this point and in full text has not been made available to Congress or to the general public? Is there a sense of this ever happening? Will we ever get to read it? What Barr has said is that he is going to work with the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, and with Mueller, who is still special counsel, we should note. He is not 
gone. He is still special counsel for now. And they're all going to work together to determine what more from the report can be released. There is obviously tremendous pressure on them to make as much of it, if not all of it, public. But as Barr has said, there is information in there that uh, could relate to ongoing investigations, which they, which they don't want to jeopardize. And there's information in there that relates to grand jury matters, which are regulated uh, by law and by regulation. And there's some information that just legally cannot be public. Um, So that process, that review process is now ongoing. Okay, a question I had this morning, Zoe, is speaking of ongoing investigations, where does Trump Tower Moscow fit into all of this? Is that in there? Is that the New York uh, thing that's happening? Where's Trump Tower Moscow in all this? We don't know. Um, The letter from the attorney general does not reference anything specific about the investigation. It speaks in generalities. So we don't know what Mueller had to say about the president's involvement in the negotiations during the campaign to build a tower, which ultimately was not built in Moscow. We don't know what the report says about Michael Cohen's testimony, um, what he said he he told investigators, which is that he understood the president to be directing him to lie to Congress about the timeline of the Trump Tower project. We just don't know. Um, the, the letter does acknowledge that the special counsel's office referred out certain matters to other law enforcement offices. It doesn't say what those matters are or who those offices are. Um, but there is a, an acknowledgement that there are there may still be ongoing investigations related to the Mueller probe. We just don't know what they are. Okay. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. I know this is going to be a very busy day for you, Zoe. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. So it seems like not a lot. The answer, I mean, that's what you, we, we don't even know. She literally went and like I, this. It's like, we don't know even yeah. how big it is. And I think that point that Zoe made is, and that you're reminding us, is so important, right? Despite the fact that, you know, really important voices, you know, for different reasons, and I'm not just talking about people, I'm talking about organizations, you know, are, are working to be like, well, that's the that on that. The chapter's closed. We know it's time to move on. There's actually very little we know at this point. Exactly. But so where does the White House go from here? Mm-hmm. How are they feeling, Trina? party tweeted, Trump will continue to keep the focus on Mueller's conclusion on collusion as evidence of vindication for their two-year-long defense, that the media and Democrats unfairly went after the president, his family, his campaign, and businesses. Collusion, conclusion, vindication. Tarini Party, BuzzFeed News White House correspondent, joins us right now. Tarini, good morning. Good morning, guys. You have all the buzzwords down. (laughs) We do. We've had time to practice. Uh, Well, so your story notes right from the jump that Trump tweeted a variation of the phrase no collusion over 50 times throughout the investigation. So, hey, do you think he's going to stop now? (laughs) I don't think he's going to stop anytime soon. So get ready for a lot more tweets uh, that say all caps, no collusion. This is a point that the president and his allies are eager to make. They want the public to know the conclusion of that part of Mueller's report. Uh, because they feel like it proves their point. The last two years, they've they've screamed, they've shouted that Democrats, that the media are out to get them. And now as they face more investigations, this is a point that they're going to repeatedly bring up. Okay, and do you think the GOP is going to kind of follow suit that that is going to become the party line? 
It seems so. We've already heard from the RNC. They're focusing on uh, the amount of money that the Mueller investigation costs. They're going into, you know, what uh, specific Democratic senators and members of Congress said on the, the collusion side. So they're definitely focusing on one part of the Mueller report, which dealt with uh, the question of collusion. They're not really focusing at all on the obstruction of justice side. Yeah, and, and to that point, I mean, what are Democrats, for example, saying about the implications both of obstruction of justice and what the Mueller report has indicated did happen with Russia and the 2016 election? That's right. So, you know, there's something in this bar letter for both sides. So we're seeing Republicans focusing on uh, the collusion side and we're seeing Democrats uh, really focus on the obstruction of justice side, which, as Zoe mentioned earlier, was more open ended. And it was ultimately Barr who made the decision. Barr, of course, is a political appointee. So for a lot of Democrats, uh, they feel like he was not a neutral party in terms of making this decision. And so we're already hearing from um, a lot of Democrats making that point that this decision on the conclusion on, of an obstruction of justice was made, you know, after 48 hours of review by someone who is a political appointee. Okay, now Trump spent the weekend at Mar-a-Lago, like, and and so I, I gotta say, do you think that he is going to try and put this story in the rearview mirror, or is this going to be something that they use going into the 2020 campaign? It, it seems like this is something they want to use. This is not something that, um, you know, they're they're letting willing to let go. Trump doesn't let things go, as we know. And um, they actually think that this will help him in their reelection efforts. We've already seen the Trump 2020 campaign put out a video last night that went through um, different interviews that Democrats had given where um, they, you know, they said that they had evidence to show that there had been conclusion. So, uh, they're trying to make the point that Democrats overplayed their hand and went on TV and made all sorts of claims that now Mueller has said were, you know, or at least Barr in his letter has said that Mueller found to be not true. Uh, so they're they're already making that point in uh, a video. We'll see um, the president will be in Michigan this week doing uh, a Make America Great Again rally. So we expect him to bring this up again. Um, so, yeah, so this is an issue that the, the Trump campaign wants to keep uh, in the focus for everyone. Right. And to that point, they no collusion, no collusion. They want to keep reminding us it's good for his base. Is Trump or anyone or his surrogates or anyone on the right saying, yeah, we believe in the report so much. It proved our point. Let's release the full report. So a lot of Republican senators have actually made that point. Um, we saw there was an overwhelming vote in, in, in Congress that um, called for the release of the report. Um, I think there are uh, people in his orbit who want the public to have the information, at least on the collusion side, um, so that they can make their own determination. Um, but also on the obstruction of justice side, a few people I talked to said, uh, you know, when the, the, the crime itself that or the investigation itself, the purpose was collusion, when that has not been proven to be true, then the obstruction of justice argument kind of falls apart and they're hoping that if this report does become public, they can sort of make that point that given that there was, you know, Mueller has said there was no, no collusion, why would anyone try to obstruct the, this investigation if that didn't happen? Mm. All right. Well, Tarini, thank you so much for your insight this morning. Thanks so much. And I've got to say, that's a really important part of it, right? Barr said, Mueller said. Right. Like, I just feel like that's a phrase. It's an inconvenient be... sentence, but it's an important one. <laughs> it's a very important yeah. one. What I want to know, actually, is where's Mueller today? Does he get a day off? 
He's chilling. He's watching into the Spider-Verse. <laughs> he's catching up. He's watching he's like, us. He's like, I gotta go see a, us. That is a good question. Like, like what do you what do you do after a moment like this? Sweet as your thoughts. Like, how do you think Mueller is spending his money? He's gotta return all those pen registers. He's like packing up his desk. I don't know. I don't know how any of this works. Well, anyway, we've got another great show for you today. Actor Lorraine Toussaint is here. I love her. She's so incredible and scary, also often. I'm excited to sit down with her, but up next, it's Fire Tweets. She had me shook on Orange is the New Black. Yeah. Let's get into these fire tweets. Our first one comes from Tina, not Turner. So I thought this guy was checking me out at the gym. Then he comes up to me and says, hey, can I tell you something? Your form is trash. Engage your core. And it humbled the shit out of me. <laughs> okay, so first of all, fuck him. Yeah, no. Fuck that guy. 100% fuck that guy. Here's the thing, though. Yeah. He might also just be bad at hitting on people. Like, I can see I a world. Was. I see a world in which he yeah, was, yeah. maybe. I think this is negging. Yeah. Or well, that's giving him a lot of credit. Uh-huh. I think there's just a chance that this guy was like, uh, "What do I say? What do I this say?" This is a cool thing to say, yeah. and he fucked it up. The core is literally—it is. You have to pay a lot of attention. It's like, are you looking at how someone's <laughs> tightening their glutes? Where they're, you know, he—he he was paying a lot of attention to you, Tina. I think he came up. I think he's trash. Yes. I think you don't call him back. I Absolutely think you ghost not. him. Uh, but I think he was definitely paying a lot of attention to you. Yeah, I think so too. I yeah. just—why are you so obsessed with me? Know where the core is. <laughs> Char Lily tweeted, let's slander newborns. I don't like their little swoopy hairdos. Yeah, fuck those guys. Yeah, man, they shit their pants. Babies <laughs> suck. I've heard it once. I'll say it a hundred times. How are they contributing to the economy? I have this. This is my rule on babies and children. I don't think they're cute just because they're babies and children. <laughs> they are human beings. Okay, I am humane. They have I, to prove themselves. Are you funny? You know, are you interested? Do you have good banter? Are you charming? That's what I'm looking for. You know, you know, you don't have to have your fashion sense, little Debbie. Sense of style. Maybe I don't, I don't I like your haircut. Yeah, De- why are you going out to Debbie like that? Leave Debbie alone, dog. Chill out. Okay, this next tweet comes from Ace. <laughs> The manager at McDonald's had the audacity to chase me out to my car to see if I had water in my water cup. And bitch almost made me spill my sweet tea. (laughs) I can barely read it. It's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful. Mm. I know I was trifling, but you were being trifling, assuming that I was being trifling. Again, the thing this morning, why are you so obsessed with me? Sweet tea in my core. That's none of your damn business. You ever, you ever do that as a kid? Of course. Yeah. As a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before you implicate yourself. This tweet comes from Daniel Caesar back in 2017, but it's made its way back into the timeline. Mm. My biggest job in life right now is to simply not sabotage myself. <laughs> well, you you're fi- fired. <laughs> you failed. I'm sorry. That no, was good. That was good. You, that's a New Year's resolution yeah. that you didn't. Oh. Yeah. Mm. That's mm. that didn't go well. Didn't, that didn't, didn't go. Also, I love that he has an LOL. Who's laughing now? <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway. Do you ever have that moment though? Because that's. Do you ever like? I'm surprised he hasn't tweeted. I mean, there. Like, deleted listen, it. Like when we fuck up. There is always going to be a tweet from like a year or two ago that's like, "Well, Saeed, two years ago you said, yeah." That's, but you start getting the alerts. You start getting. Oh, this is. Oh, this is that comes retweeted. back. Yeah, it's coming back. It's like. Oh, but usually when it comes back, I have no idea why it's resurfacing. Usually for me, it's like random tweets. And I'm like, oh, delightful. <laughs> I was quite charming in 2014. Thank you. <laughs> it's not for Daniel Caesar reasons. Not. Him. 
him. No love for that guy. Uh, you ready for three of the day? Let's do it. It comes from Raven. Self-control is walking past Aunt Annie's and Cinnabon at the mall. Every single time. I do. It's That's just a perfect tweet to me because in my head, I literally am like, good job. Every time I, like, every, it's like, hey, you did it, man. Really? Yeah. I just, it's been a while since I've been in a mall, but usually it's the airport. Same thing. And even then, the only reason I keep going is probably because I'm late for my flight. Would you, I'm, it's, I'm sorry. I think it's some of the best food in the world. I, lo- I love a Cinnabon. All right. <laughs> Listen, coming up, Saeed is sitting down with Lorraine Toussaint. But up, uh, up next, how Jordan Peele's sophomore outing us did at the weekend box off. Snip, snip. Earlier this morning, we asked you all what you did this weekend. You know, did you file any special counsel reports? Just wondering. (laughs) Uh, More than a few of you, though, went to see the movie Us, me included. Uh, Here's a tweet from Fandango's Eric Davis. Got some good numbers. U.S. movie. Oh, my God, I just said U.S. movie. It's Us. (laughs) That's an intentional pun, though, I swear. Us movie opens with a monster $70.2 million. That means best opening ever for an original horror movie. Third best horror movie of all opening of all time. I'm not trying to get in a fight with fans. Best opening for a live-action original film since 2009's Avatar. I like that you were like, that misread was on purpose. (laughs) It was part of it, part of the scheme. (laughs) Well, Variety's Rebecca Rubin joins us now to talk movie money because us sure did make a lot of it good morning rebecca good morning so in your tweet about us's very successful opening weekend you mentioned the power of peel what does the power of peel mean to you to me i think after get out jordan peel really solidified himself as a brand and he's now creating the type of movies that you see director Jordan Peele and you're automatically going to go see it. And that's pretty rare nowadays. There aren't many directors that are pulling in audiences based on their name alone. And that's something that he was able to pull off with us. No spoilers here, but I did notice immediately when I saw the movie that it has a much more ambitious soundtrack. And I was told that Jordan Peele was given actually more time to shoot. So are those also examples of the impact of the success of Get Out? Yeah, and I think that people were eager to see what he was doing next. It came two years after Get Out, so it was able to drum up a lot of anticipation. People were very excited to see his next project, and so it was a sweet spot where people are still wanting to see what he does next, but it was enough time for him to cultivate his next project. He was able to like really, really do it the way have he wanted money, to. do it the way that he wanted to. He's not the only one, though. Other people, I didn't realize this, were maybe scared of us coming out because I read that no other studios released movies this weekend. Is that true? Right. Us was the only movie to open nationwide this weekend, and... Like you said, it really is a testament to Jordan Peele and the success of Get Out because studios were really expecting this to be a huge weekend and it delivered. Listen, you see those gold scissors enough and you start getting a little wary. I get it. Well, listen, I wanted to ask you about this tweet from Blacklist founder Franklin Leonard. He said, gonna put a fine point on it. If you need any proof that Hollywood undervalues black people, look no further than the consistent surprise that box office numbers for black movies consistently exceed their assumption of our value. It's like clockwork every single time. That certainly happened with Get Out and that's happening again with this movie. It's happened. Black Panther was like, oh, it's surprise. It's a huge success. Why does this keep happening? Well, something I think is interesting is 
Get Out was very much about race relations, us not so much. And so it's just proving then uh, time after time that these movies do have universal appeal and it pulled out a very diverse audience at 36% of the opening weekend audience was Caucasian, 30% was African-American, and I think about 21% was Hispanic. So it's not really just one demographic that these movies are pulling out. It's kind of showing that they have universal appeal and studios don't need to worry about basically making their money back on these kinds of stories. And it is really interesting too, to kind of think about the way that's a lot of the headlines I felt was part of that conversation, but we saw studios literally not releasing other movies. So it's it's clear that people at least know the power that Peel has. Let's really talk numbers though. Break it down. How good of a weekend was this for us? It's especially as an R rated film. Um, Like how much money did it make? So heading into the weekend, the studio was being a little cautious. They were saying they were expecting a debut north of Get Out, and that movie opened with $33 million. And that would have honestly been a great start. The movie cost $20 million to produce, which is basically a fraction of what most studios spend to make a movie. So $33 million would have been a great start. Um, industry tracking was a little higher, said that the opening weekend was going to be 40 to 48 million around there. And then it ended up basically doubling expectations and it opened to 70 million, meaning it basically quadrupled its production budget in its opening weekend, which is a monster success. Yeah, that is uh, scary good. I do want to ask about foreign markets uh, to the point of universal appeal. I know often industry talk, at least, is that movies with black leads may do okay in the United States, but they're definitely not going to do as well in huge markets like China. Are we starting to get a sense of how Us is performing abroad? It Us is slowly expanding its rollout overseas. So it opened in a few markets this weekend. It pulled in $16 million, And it's right now pacing ahead of Get Out. And so it's pulling up, um, Get Out brought in solid numbers overseas. It definitely made most of its money at the domestic box office, but it makes enough money to prove that people do want to see this movie. I love it. I love it. Well, good news. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Okay, Twitter, let's take it to the timeline. Do you have any fond memories of seeing a film opening weekend? I feel like a lot of people were making memories this weekend. Share your film nostalgia, whether it's back in the day or whether it was just from this past weekend, using the hashtag AM to DM. Um, well, I saw Us by myself this weekend, so <laughs> okay. I was like, I was like literally like a little thrown off walking out of the theater. Um, seeing Black Panther opening weekend. <sighs> Five years ago, um, <laughs> was really fun. I saw it in Harlem. Yep. It was like people came in costumes and just dressed fancy. That was fun. It was it was really impressive. No, Black Panther's up there for me yeah. as well. Yeah. I remember when I was a kid, I saw Sixth Sense opening Ooh. weekend. And I remember that like blowing oh, my mind. Oh man! But that was one of those ones. It's like it, it really could have been whole spoiled, other. So it's really good. <laughs> really Ooh, good to see that. I was like, this also what you're saying though. The fact that they made it for twenty million dollars. I feel like that's why you see these horror movies doing so well. They can be made for a low budget, and then they can really bring the money in. Yeah, because also I was just say it's much more ambitious. It's like it's a bigger landscape than Get Out even. So I'm like, oh, good deal you got on that budget, y'all. Anyway, I also wanted to tweet out this poll. This is me being selfish, uh, rarely. Uh, When is the deadline for us discussing our us theories on the timeline? Mm. I have been direct messaging people, Mm. texting. You can DM me if you're like, I need someone to talk to. (laughs) I will talk about this nonstop, but I need an open discourse. Yeah, what is the date where people can, because from what I've heard, there's just a lot of theories. Yeah. When can people start bringing their theories to the timeline? It's even different from spoilers. It's a whole thing. For me, it's... 
as soon as I see the movie. Okay, <laughs> all right. Coming up, I'll be talking with actor Lorraine Toussaint, but up next, Stephanie talks about great books that are out this spring. There are so many with BuzzFeed Books editor Ariana Rebellini. <laughs> Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News Books editor Ariana Rebellini. So in love with these books, nearly half of which are coming from indie presses. Enjoy. Here are 37 spring books to get excited about. Ariana joins me now to highlight her favorite spring reads from this list. Ariana, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I love reading. You love reading. <laughs> and I'm so excited to get into these books. Okay, yeah. so the first one on your list is called The Old Drift. And you highlighted a passage from this novel. You said, this is the story of a nation, not a kingdom or a people. So it begins, of course, with a white man. <laughs> Fascinating. So yeah. what is this book about? This book is so hard to describe, but it's worth it. Um, basically, it is this sprawling, like nearly 600 pages long book about Zambia and how it becomes a country and what it goes through. And it looks, it focuses on these three families who interact in this early 20th century kind of faded encounter between an Italian hotel owner, a local African busboy, and an English settler. And they have this weird, strange encounter, and their families are intertwined for the next, like, century plus. And through these families, you know, we get to see Zambia become a country, get its independence. And what Namwali does, the author, she astoundingly, like, brings in, myth like, mythology and folklore and showing how many, how multicultural this country is. And we even get into the future with, like, some sci-fi. It's just, like, it's, like I said, hard to describe, but you have to experience it. So it's historical fiction in that the characters themselves are fictional, but there is actual history about this country. Exactly. So you might, be, might learn something. Too. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the next one we have is The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna by Juliet Grames. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Seven or eight deaths. Yeah, <laughs> Tell yeah us like, about it. depending on who you're talking to. <laughs> so basically, Stella Fortuna is this Italian woman. We see her family, the Fortuna family. We learn about her mother. And it's about, like, the kind of formidable women in her family. And Stella, like the title says, she is kind of, like, near death a lot <laughs> and just a survivor. And you see as they immigrate to America around World War II. And it's a story of, like, how these deaths and, and their family history kind of built a rift between her and her sister. Um, and so it's a real family story, but also a little, like, um, a little larger than life. Very interesting. Okay, yeah. so everyone that watches this show knows I love a good thriller. You know that. I'm always picking those out yeah. of your pile. So what is a good thriller on this list? There's like a theme to these books. They're all weird. <laughs> so Perfect. This is a weird... It's 2019 and we need some yeah, weirdness. Yeah, we need to get like a little strangeness going on. And this is definitely a weird thriller. It's trippy. It's called The Tears of the Truffle Pig by Fernando A. Flores. And it is basically, uh, again, a kind of dystopian alternate, slightly altered version of reality where um, narcotics are totally legal. We're dealing on the U.S.-Mexico border, and there's this new technology that allows scientists to revive extinct animals and theoretically to, like, kind of solve world hunger and, like, make crops and, and this stuff. But apparently, you know, there's this criminal underbelly where they've been reviving these animals and kind of selling, like, a dark black market under underground and um, using them for bad, <laughs> bad crimes, basically. Um, and so this one man, Bellicosa, gets kind of sucked into this by an investigative reporter, and he's going to all these, like, weird kind of dinner parties to try these, like, extinct animals, and you have to pay a lot of money. And it's, it's, very, it's very trippy. It's very, like, reading it feels like you're on a hallucinogenic, kind of. Um, but it's just this journey through this crazy, mad world that he's 
discovering. Sounds like a perfect book to read after a day of working in the news. Yes. Get, yeah. your, get your brain, get your brain to go a little crazy. Yeah. Okay. So we've had drama, family intrigue. What about mm -hmm. a love story? Maybe something a little lighter fair. You yes. know, everyone's going on vacation. I, uh, I love this story. So this is The Bride Test by Helen Huang, who wrote The Kiss Quotient last year, which was like such a huge hit. Um, she writes, she has Asperger's and she writes characters with Asperger's as well. So we have Kai, um, who is the male lead. He has Asperger's and he was introduced in the the previous book. And his mother's trying to set him up to get married because he's just not interested in romance. And so she finds, she goes to Vietnam and finds this woman, Esme, and she's a single mother. She's like looking for kind of just a change in her life. And so Kai's mother is like, come to the States. I'll pay for everything. You will live with my son. You're going to convince him to marry you after a summer. And so it's their love story. And she, Esme, does this because she wants a better life for herself. And she's kind of weirded out, but she's like, I don't know, this might be my entry into, you know, like the States and there's money and I could make a better life for myself. And um, so it's about their love story, but it's also about Esme as like an immigrant and like kind of following her own dreams. Fascinating. That yeah. sounds so interesting. Well, you've got a lot of stuff here <laughs> that we can read. I am so interested in all of these books. Thank you so much for joining me. As always, we'll tweet out the full list of spring books to get excited about. And up next, Saeed sits down with Lorraine Toussaint. Hello, my queens. This is The Sit Down, and I'm here with the queen, Lorraine Toussaint. You know her from Orange is the New Black into the Batlands, and now she's starring in the new NBC drama, The Village. Good morning. Good morning, Saeed. Oh, this is such a delight. This is such a and delight. you? I love seeing Saeed. Oh, <laughs> and I love hearing you say Saeed. <laughs> now, so the, the Village premiered last week. Congratulations. Thanks. Uh, what drew you to this role, to this community? Well, um, it was such um, a heartfelt show. Mm. And up until now, I've sort of been playing um, sorceresses <laughs> and prisoners. And I went through a period of playing lots of lawyers and mm -hmm. people in charge. And mm -hmm. then I went behind bars. And, yeah. And then I went to the Badlands. Yeah. And this was really at the center of my wheelhouse. And mm -hmm. I wanted to... I love what the message of this show is, especially this time. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with this character. Her name is Patricia. My name is Patricia. <laughs> um, there were so many mm -hmm. signs there that, uh, that uh, led me to it. And they're such good people, wonderful actors. Yeah. It was and a nice, a soft place to land. A soft place. And I, w I was thinking about it, because you've played, we're going to talk about V in a moment. You <laughs> you have played, you know, tough, formidable characters. Yeah. And, and, and this show, one, you know, you're very caring, warm. But also, I've been thinking a lot about these big-hearted ensemble shows we're seeing on NBC. Certainly, This Is Us, New Amsterdam, and now The Village. Um, do you think there's more of a, a need for us to see these kinds of shows now? I think so. I think mm -hmm. we're hungry for community. We're hungry for um, caring and support mm -hmm. and um, where people have got your back. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been engaged in so much enemy thinking, you know, us and them enemy thinking. Enemy thinking, wow. And enemy thinking leads to enemy behavior. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I wanted to lend my artistry to, to the antithesis of that, mm -hmm. um, helping us to just, in, you know, a little bit of remembering of of who we were and who we, I think, essentially are. Mm. It's true, good people living together. Mm -hmm. Trying to do it together. Yeah, Trying yeah, to we, together. we're much better together than, than alone. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I did want to talk about your incredible star turn, really, as V on Orange <laughs> is the New Black. Did you know when you were shooting and, and, and you know just doing the work that V was going to resonate the way she did as a character? I wasn't, you never know how things are going to resonate. Okay. But I knew how V felt in my body. How'd she feel? Um, <laughs> she, she didn't feel as cray-cray as you might think. Okay. 
she came off cray-cray, <laughs> but um, she was um, free, mm-hmm. you know? And, <laughs> and most of society doesn't need to be that free. Mm. You know, there's a level of freedom that, she, that V perceived in her own mind mm-hmm. that probably was dangerous. Yeah, no, that lined up, honestly. I, I, she was tactical. Yes. Yeah, and I, I thought, you know, it, a, a, a tactical, liberated woman is a scary thing Yeah, <laughs> and one who doesn't necessarily have consequences, yeah. doesn't perceive consequences. Mm-hmm. So much of our mm-hmm. behavior is dictated by consequences. Right. If you do that, oh, you're going to do that. Right. No, don't do that because that. Mm-hmm. If you remove consequences, mm-hmm. that kind of freedom is... Dangerous. That's pretty dangerous. Look at we're both like, yeah. clearly we, we're, we like ambiguous yeah. <laughs> characters Yeah, here. she was fun though. Yeah. It's, that's, yeah. A fun, that's a fun thing to explore. I'm sure. Brian Tyree Henry has said that after he plays a character, they kind of stay with him for a while after a project. Like, and you were talking about, she's free, she's liberated. Like, did V stay with you? Do characters sometimes stay with you? Yeah, they all stay with you for a while. Okay. It's because, because as actors, people think we're pretending we're not pretending mm. we're actually living that person mm-hmm. for within parameters for mm-hmm. that a period of time and so you fall in love with those mm-hmm. characters you it's, it's like leaving someone you've been in love with for a very mm-hmm. for a long time you've had a deep intimate relationship with someone and then suddenly you, you've broken up and they're gone mm. Um, there is a there is a, weaning. a mourning process. Yeah, there's a weaning and mourning process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you are in so many projects, and I, I just wanted to you know pay homage to this. Of course, uh, an animated Netflix series uh, with Guillermo del Toro horror movie. Mm-hmm. There, um, you know, Into the Badlands. Of course, The Village. Like so many, and you've been doing excellent work since the '80s. We Thank have to you. remember that excellent work consistently. Does this feel like a new career space, though? Does it feel like a new moment for you? Yes, a little bit. Um, I keep seemingly in accidentally reinventing myself. <laughs> You're very good at it. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm, I'm no Madonna. I don't go about doing it. But I, I do seem to still have a sense of relevance mm. that um, makes me feel good about the work. Because at the end of the day, you know, um, I'm, the, the work is a gift. Mm. I mean to give it. Mm. In a in a generous way, in a meaningful way, so uh, it's it's still working. I love so it. I'll keep doing it. Please do, because we're grateful for it. Thank you. We're grateful for it. Um, recently on Twitter, um, Yvette Nicole Brown, who's wonderful, uh, started a thread that a lot of Black actors were responding to about the experiences of showing up on set to do their job, <laughs> and you know, there's no one there who can do black hair or black makeup. Uh, you showed up looking excellent <laughs> this happy morning. Happy and nappy. Yeah, happy and nappy, happily so. Um, um, do you, have you had experiences like that on set? Oh, gosh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, listen, I'm not dissing any of the wonderful hair artists mm-hmm. that I have worked with who are, who are people, women especially, of not of color. Mm-hmm. But you do end up teaching wow. a lot mm-hmm. on, on, listen... I'm at the age now where I, before I go into certain like a series, I will ask, okay, can, can you just ask them if, it, if they can do a press and curl? Okay. And if they don't know what a press and curl is. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Or yeah. I've had people lie and no. said, oh, yes, I do know, and not a clue. Mm-hmm. Um, we've all had our hair fall out in some capacity. Mm-hmm. We've all had it burned off in some capacity. Um, uh, it 
makeup is easier. Makeup is easier. Uh, makeup is an easier animal to right. navigate. Right. But hair, you got to know what you're doing yeah. with, with, with black hair. Yeah, because you can go into the bathroom and be like, oh, let me go do this myself. Let me, your oh, hair. Oh, no, I'm too old for that. Okay. I, I'm going to the bathroom. <laughs> I, uh-uh. I just, God love him. I just take the brush. Really? But, uh, no, I, I'm too old to pretend. Yeah. I used to. You, mm-hmm. As a young actor, you go to the bathroom and you fix it. Okay. Mm-mm. Not anymore. No, I want to come out of the chair already done. But the hair that. is hard. It's yeah. hard. It's hard. And there aren't enough people of color in the, in, mm-hmm. in the hair and makeup trailer. That is a fact. Mm-hmm. And, and, and speaking to your wisdom and your experience, like you're, you're, you are, you know, in your full powers of experience, um, are you noticing a different a better culture begin to emerge on sets like as you're doing your work, you know? Is it easier for you to do your work now? In, as a black actor? As a black actress. Um, you know what's nice? What's, what's even better is that there are more, there are more women directors. Mm. There are more women executive producers. Uh, there are more women on set. Mm. Uh, there are more people of color on set. Mm. That's, that is changing slowly mm-hmm. because I think that the powers that be are, are finally recognizing that it has to be an, a concerted decision right. to do that. It's not just going to happen because right. the status quo is, you know, primarily white sets. Mm-hmm. But um, I have, like the film I just did, um, Fast Color, okay. Julia yes, Fast Hart, yes. who is an, an amazing director, writer, producer. You know, she and she didn't start out having this film be about three black women. Mm. She just wanted she just wanted to to work with the best actors mm. that she, that for these parts mm-hmm. which happened to be black. Okay. And as a woman director, uh the ADs were black. Mm. And what if for producers, I mean not black but were women. Mm-hmm. And so women bring in more women, right. people of color bring in people of color. So I, I, it is changing. Well, that is good to hear. Yeah. It's good to hear. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. We'll keep going. Got a lot of work to do. Still, a lot of work to do. But you've been doing good, good work for some time now, and we Thank appreciate you. it. Oh my goodness. Well, friends, uh, Lorraine Desant, you can see her on NBC's The Village Tuesdays at 10 p.m. and in so many new projects and movies and shows. We're so excited. Next up, Isaac is going to talk to Mira Jacob about her memoir, Good Talk. Thank you so You're much. You're so adorable. Thank you. Welcome back. Here's a tweet from Jenny. I opened Mir Jacobs' graphic memoir, Good Talk, and had to read it in its entirety immediately. Mir Jacob, author and illustrator of Good Talk, a memoir and conversations, joins me now. Good morning, Mir. Good morning, Isaac. How are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. The book comes out tomorrow. It Congratulations. Does. Yeah, that's a thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you wrote for BuzzFeed back in like 2015, right? I think it was like 37 conversations I've had with my mixed race son. That's right, absolutely. What made you want to take those conversations and turn them into a memoir? So here's this crazy thing. I wrote that piece because my son was obsessed with Michael Jackson. He was asking me about the color of his skin. He was six, so he's sort of figuring out that he was brown. Mm -hmm. And he had these kind of crazy questions like, you know, is Michael Jackson brown or white? And I said, he's brown, but he turned white. And he said, are you going to turn white? And I said, no, I'm not going to turn white. He said, is daddy going to turn white? I said, daddy's not going to turn white. And he said, and I said, daddy's already white. And he said, was he always? And I was like, oh my God, I've messed up my kid. And <laughs> like, He's so new to the world that I broke it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I'll give him back now. Somebody else take care of this. 
Um, but when that happened, I was doing the thing where I would try to write an essay about that normally. You know, you, you, I'm a writer, I write an essay, and every time I did that, all I could see was the comment section of mm. every single person that would never believe our conversation, because the, com the conversation got really hard. It got, are white people afraid of brown people? He was asking me that, is daddy gonna be afraid of us? And, and I knew that people weren't gonna believe it, so I actually drew us on printer paper, and I cut us out, and I put us on top of the Michael Jackson albums. Mm -hmm. And the minute I did that, I knew I didn't have to convince anyone anymore, because I could just write the conversation. They could listen to it or not. Right. But I just got to write the conversation, which was what was really kind of great about that moment. And that's the way you presented it. A lot of the conversations in this book are about race. Yes. What made you want to tackle, I mean, such a large conversation. Yeah, I mean, it was with, easy. With a young child. <laughs> <laughs> simple, simple. Okay, so first I would say I didn't want to tackle the conversation with a young child. A kid is brown, he's gonna ask questions. Mm -hmm. And I think people have this understanding of like, well, you don't have to talk to your kid about that stuff, but you kinda do. Because mm. it's better than kind of gaslighting him and telling him like, that's not happening. None of, those, none of those weird things are really happening. So we were having these conversations anyway. The president, the now president, was making his run up to that presidency and saying things on the television screen that were scaring my son and scaring his friends. And he was asking me, what does it mean? Does the president not like boys like me? What does that mean? And even now, with the presidency, he said to me the other day, and it kind of broke me, he said, is it bad that I'm brown and Jewish because those are two things no one likes? Mm. And I just felt like, damn it, damn it. So I put them in here, a lot of those conversations, because I think sometimes it's hard for people to believe that these conversations are happening. Mm -hmm. But I think when they can be a sort of observer, when they're not directly, you know, I'm not having a conversation with the person who's reading this book, I'm having it with my son, I'm having it with my mother, I'm having it with my husband and my best friend. If they can see what it's like to be in this body, having those conversations, they get a feeling for what that's like. And maybe have their own conversations when they interact with the work themselves. Yeah. I'm also remembering the essay that you wrote uh, about racism in publishing. I'm sorry, that like, oh, that right. yeah. is like kind of flooding back to me yeah, now, yeah, yeah. which that would have been 2016. It's something you live with every Every day. Um, that said, 2015 compared to now, very different. Really times. different. How are you tackling these conversations as your son gets older? You know, he's 10, so he's wow. he's super smart now. Um, <laughs> I mean, he was pretty smart then, but uh, he has a really a different level of sophistication. Uh -huh. He asks really rough questions. We had to have the Michael Jackson talk. The book opens with <sighs> Michael Jackson. Uh -huh. We had to have the Michael Jackson talk the other day, and it was really gutting. And I think the way that I tackle it is I have this. Um, Thing that I stick to, for better or worse, which is that I try to only ever answer the question he's asking me. Mm. Because I've got like a world of information that is somewhat terrifying mm -hmm. and a lot of different ways in which I want to kind of prepare him for things, but it's not going to get easier for him if I lay all of that on him. So I try to answer the question he asked me mm -hmm. and just go from that point forward. And kind of wait for that next one. Is that yeah. the way you were raised? I would, like, no. that's, as I read it, that's something <laughs> I found myself like, yeah. No, I was raised firmly with wonderful, wonderful parents who were like, no, that is not happening. That uh -huh. is not, you know, the racism. They came here in the 60s. They felt very welcomed by America, but they also felt, um, they didn't see a lot of the things that were happening around them in quite the same way because I think they, I think they were literally groomed to be, as we talk about all the time now, the model minority. Like, if you don't see it, mm. you're doing better at being in America. 
What a toxic lesson. But it's a lot. That's it's incredible. Lot. That's yeah. incredible. Listen, uh, congratulations. The book is coming out tomorrow, but it's already been optioned. It's it has already be a been optioned. TV it's series, yes. uh, executive produced by Eddie Huang. Yes. I mean, that's amazing. Yes, it is. Are um, you, are, yeah. one, are there any shows out there right now that are inspiring to you? And also, how are you, I mean, all the images in this book are just like still, they're stagnant. How are you going to translate it to the screen? Okay, so we're, we're having real people um, act instead of cartoons. We're not, we're not doing sense. that. Um, Makes so sense. humans will be saying words. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's one thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, I'm working with um, uh, Nisha Ganatra. Do you know her? She yeah. did the first season of Transparent. She's done a lot of. She just did, had a bunch of stuff up at Sundance. She's great, really smart. Um, and Eddie Wong, who called me and said, "You can you can be the writer on this." And I was like, "Can, can I? I don't know about that." And he was great because he was like, "You know, you just taught yourself how to draw, to write a book. Mm. I think you're going to be okay." writing a television show. I think it's going to work out for you. So, yeah, it was really lovely. That is so awesome. I think it's really going to work out for you, too. Yeah. I'm really excited. Well, thank you. well, congratulations on this fantastic, fantastic book, Mary. I really appreciate you, so you coming much. in today. Uh, Good Talk, a memoir, and conversations will be available everywhere tomorrow, March 26th. Be sure to pick up a copy. Pick it up for a friend. Up next, Saeed and I are responding to a few more of your tweets. Nice. Welcome back. Yeah. We stand Mira Jacob. Forever. I just love her and her son and her family and they're brilliant. best. And that's what's so wonderful. A memoir, I think, especially is important uh, to, to really show your whole self. Mm. And that's what she does in that book. It's really so incredible, good. holding nothing back, really opening up on the page. So good. But listen, we wanted to know if you have any fond memories of oh. seeing a film opening weekend. Lily says... The Matrix Reloading, Mm. not because of the movie. The movie was ass. But earlier that day, my mom (laughs) took my brother and I for a tour of Carnegie Hall, and it would have been perfect if my brother did not force us to watch that trash. (laughs) That is beautiful! (laughs) What a great answer! Who took us to the mountaintop and then dragged us back down to the valley? I just love the idea that she's like, oh, it has nothing to do with the movie. But I have a wonderful memory of a beautiful day with my family. Same opening weekend. And then that movie sucked. (laughs) Same opening, same closing. Uh, Rachel Hey Girlfriend had this to say, not opening weekend, but when I saw Crazy Rich Asians, uh, most of the audience was white, and I will always remember the large gasp coming from an old white guy when the main character was letting go of her love. We were all so invested. Mm. (laughs) That's really funny. Just shook. Just, he's like, <gasps> yeah. I, I do, because there's something about opening weekend experiences or in New York going to see a play. That's very exciting. That there are those moments where the audience is a part of your experience. Oh, particularly as someone who watches movies at home alone all the time. Like in that, in that you're kind of, you know, sometimes it's a problem. Sometimes it's affirming. Sometimes you're like, oh, thank God. Girl, did you see that too? That was crazy. It's good. When you get a whole crowd really going, yes. at a movie theater that wants to, to, to have yes. this kind of moment, yes. it can be such a thrilling moment. Seeing, <laughs> Go on. Seeing Get Out in Harlem, one is excellent. On 125th, the same theater I saw Black Panther, but I will just never forget, I'm not going to spoil it, but you've had like two years. At the end of Get Out, um, an old black grandmother in the back of the movie theater just screamed, kill that bitch! Points were made. <laughs> Points were made. Tanya Melendez tweeted this after we went live from the district with Torini. I feel like people don't realize the Mueller investigation has indicted or gotten guilty pleas from 34 people and three companies related to Trump. The DNC needs to be releasing their own videos. Mm. 
I mean, listen, I feel like that's going to be the thing that gets talked about this entire week. We're going to have time to discuss. I think there's going to be a lot more as more people get their hands on those documents. Can't wait. Well, thank you to all of our guests, Zoe Tillman, Tarini Party, Rebecca Rubin, Ariana Rebellini, Stephanie McNeil, the incredible Lorraine Toussaint, and Mira Jacob. Thank you all. That discussion was oh, fantastic. So cool. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Good luck out there. Keep Watch dancing. Watch the Spider-Verse. Watch us so we can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs>